Welcome to the Goblins and Growlers podcast. I'm Josh Maltby at Black Cloak DM on Twitter. I'm Brandon Dingus at Way of Brandalore on Twitter. Josh, do we have a treat today? Oh my God, such a treat today we have. So many of you who tuned into the episode before last, if you don't count the Vox Machina review, uh, where we talked about the end, the Christian apocalypse role-playing game. And we really tried to play up the mystery of finding the author of this game, Joe Donka, because we couldn't find any sort of online presence for him whatsoever. It's almost like he fell off the face of the tabletop role-playing game Earth, raptured perhaps, out of it, and uh, poked around a little bit, found somebody online that I thought was him, shot him a message, never heard anything back, kind of gave up on it, thinking he wanted to sort of be out of the public eye. And then lo and behold, one day... I get a response to my message that says, oh, hey, yeah, that's me. I'd love to talk about this. So we are thrilled today to have sort of solved our mystery and have with us Mr. Joe Donka, the creator of The End. Joe, thanks for taking time uh, this Saturday to talk to us. Well, thanks for having me. By the way, my wife thought the whole mystery of the long disappeared game developer was hilarious. I actually wanted to put a lot more editing work into the episode to make it like uh, an episode of Unsolved Mysteries. But one, I can't really do a Robert Stack impression to save my life. And two, it was like one in the morning when I was finishing editing that. So it could have been even worse, but I'm glad she enjoyed it. Yeah, she played it for all her colleagues at the library where she works. And they thought the idea of the guy who wanders in once in a while and brings her lunch is some man of mystery. They thought that was really hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad I, I'm glad that we could spice up some conversation topics for your wife. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we want this to just be kind of uh, a loose conversation talking about your creation. You know, I mentioned it in the last podcast. I found it just because I was sort of scrounging around for topics for me and Josh to plan out for episodes. And I found it on a Reddit list of, it was like 10 or 15, like strange or sort of off the beaten path role-playing games um, that you might not be familiar with. And I found it, I read a little bit about it and it really intrigued me. So then I started poking around and I found a copy of it on a used book site and ordered it. It's not a small book. It's like almost 200 pages. really big form factor. I had it shipped to me. I, I think I got it for maybe like eight, nine, ten dollars something like that and read through it. It was just fascinating. Just the idea of taking that, you know, the rapture, the apocalypse, everything and crafting it into uh, RPG form was really interesting to me. And Josh and I touched on this a little bit on the previous episode, how it, it's almost it almost felt like it was a little bit ahead of its time, given how popular apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic media is today. So I thought it would be fun if we could start off talking about the idea and how it came about. (laughs) And one of the things I'll mention to sort of kick off that is after you got my message, I guess you were talking to your friends and stuff, and we got just this random Facebook message from a guy named Shane Scroggins. He's like, hey, for your information, Joe Donka and I had been drinking one night and stopped at a Denny's afterward. <laughs> we were bemoaning the trend of, of games to have characters with these amazing powers, blah, 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 blah. I don't even remember who said it, but one of us mentioned the biblical apocalypse and it's like a light bulb went off. <laughs> yeah, I remember that night. Well, I remember the Denny's part of that night really well. The drinking beforehand is a blur. But yeah, that was the night the end had its entire genesis. It came about because... No pun intended. Yeah, we were were trying to sober up so we could go home. (laughs) And we started talking about how to get out of our dead-end jobs. And we decided to make a role-playing game. And really, it was that simple. It was a drunk conversation about what can we do instead of what we do 40 hours a week. I noticed that Denny's actually made its way into your acknowledgments in the back of the book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Couldn't do it without Denny's. Yeah. We did most of the early work there. 
Really? You would just like show up with a notepad and just order some pancakes and just get rolling with it? Pretty much. We were both creatures of the night. Mm -hmm. Uh, Shane was being an an assistant manager at a pizza place. So he'd get off at one, two in the morning. I was working in a casino as a dealer and I'd get off work at two, three in the morning. There are not many places to get together at two (laughs) or three in the morning in suburban Chicago that are open other than Denny's. <laughs> so this would have been what was this like around, I know the book came out in 95. So this would, would have, this have been around like 93, 94, 94, actually. Okay. Um, the, actually the Genesis of the end came about mostly thanks to Gen Con 94. Okay. Um, I'm glad Shane told you about that because yeah, we were, we'd done Gen Con 94 and, it was always an op- opportunity for me to buy all the cool games out there. Mm-hmm. And man, I even remember the lineup of games I bought that year. I bought uh, Wraith from White Wolf. I bought Nephilim from uh, Chaosium. I bought a game called Legacy, which was a ripoff of Highlander. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I bought Immortal from Precedence Publishing. And you were just and going was- as like a fan that year, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I went every year from 1984 to 1994 just as a player. Yeah, I lived in I lived right outside Indianapolis for a year, um, like in 2004, 2005. And my big regret is I didn't go to Gen Con while I was out there. Well, I actually went to college in Milwaukee, so I was I knew the area real well. I had tons of friends in the area, so it was a real easy thing to go to Gen Con. But I ended up remembering those four particular games because every game that came out that year, you were some immortal, all-powerful person in a world full of schmucks. You know? <laughs> and Shane and I always had the same sort of view of games. We liked being Frodo. We liked being a, an ordinary kind of person in a really messed up world. Mm-hmm. Ordinary person in an extraordinary circumstance. And none of the games that had come out in the a few years before that were like that. You were all so powerful that no regular person could possibly stand against you. Uh, we were playing a vampire campaign, and it was getting boring as hell. Just because there was no challenge? Yeah, I mean, oh, the police know who you are. Well, you can walk in and, you know, Terminator style the destroy a police station you have all these massive powers they just found it really kind of a dull way to game and we wanted to get back to that you know very classic joseph campbell uh little person who's called to greatness Mm -hmm. who grows over time and becomes someone formidable not someone who starts out that way so really we started thinking about what kind of games we could write like that well, you can't write fantasy like that because everyone wants to be a spellcaster or a you know, mighty warrior. just doesn't work out all that well. Mm-hmm. Science fiction, we're both huge science fiction fans, but people want to be aliens or psychics or Jedi or whatever the hell it is. And we kept going through all the different genres we could write, and really the only ones that were good for little person in weird situations were horror and post-apocalypse. Okay. Yeah, I can see horror there really easily. And yeah, um, I can see post-apocalypse there too, you know, now that you mention it. I know it's not something I immediately would think of in sort of the story circle for something like that. But yeah, I, I can get that. Well, and we've talked about this on the podcast before. There's a lot to be said for campaigns in general get boring at the point where your characters are basically demigods. Yeah. That's why I like to do like low level D&D stuff, like levels like one through five, just because you have to get a lot more ingenuity out of your characters and players. I couldn't agree more with that. I mean, there's something deeply satisfying about getting a character up to those good levels after a course of a couple years. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's the it's the early levels that I really enjoy. So that's really what led us to doing something post-apocalyptic so just wanting to have some start somebody off having lost everything 
all the vestiges of civilization and just have them sort of claw their way to survival. Exactly. That was, ex- that was exactly what we were into. And the post-apocalypse thing really, really appealed to me because originally when I went off to school, I was considering becoming a priest. Mm-hmm. I was raised in a very Roman Catholic house. I took my religion very seriously. I went off to university. I went to a Jesuit school just in case the priest thing worked out. Mm -hmm. And I ended up really losing all my faith, and I went to study philosophy instead. So all the philosophical discussions that are inherent in the end, really, that was what blew my skirt up, you know? Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, I was going to ask you if your religious background played into it any, but it sounds like just sort of the way you were raised, maybe uh, like had a small smoldering fire of an idea for this. And then as you got older and wanted to develop something and it dove into the philosophy a little bit more, that all paid off um, that whole experience of growing up very Roman Catholic. Oh, and I mean, very Roman Catholic. I was an altar boy from age nine till I was in college. Wow. I used to go to, you know, actual meetings you know not prayer meetings because catholics we don't really do that so much Mm -hmm. but bible study meetings things like this all through high school so i was really into it so this was never like an idea that you had back then like oh man i really want to tell stories in some sort of religious environment like you know setting aside the desire to be a priest being called to the faith and everything you were you were just sort of initially just in it honestly, uh, like 100% committed to it. And then after you sort of left the faith, it was still sort of there with you in a way. And do you feel like maybe working on the end was a way to help like process some of those experiences, like going from being very devoted to the faith to sort of easing your way out of it? You know, I never really did ease my way out of it. I Let's, like I say, I was studying philosophy, and one day I just realized I didn't believe mm-hmm. what I'd always believed. So it was really a very easy thing to walk away. It was harder for my parents than it was for me. Hey, I know, I know the feeling. <laughs> I know the feeling. This is exactly the sort of thing Chick Tracks warn us about. <laughs> oh, Chick Tracks! <laughs> I, I am just old enough to have lived through, lived through, and game through the entire Satanic Panic. So oh, God. if you want to get into that a little later, I'd love to talk about that. Yeah, no, I was going to when we start when we talk about uh, the Gen Con incident and all that stuff, I was going to touch on some of that because I I'm 40. So I came up like into D&D like right after all that stuff had sort of died down a little bit. I actually started playing second edition in probably around 95. Uh, I know Josh is a wee babe, so he probably doesn't remember any of that. Yeah, I was I was born in 90, so I'm well past I'm. I'm still in the era when it's like, oh, God, TTRPGs, what kind of nerd are you? But not not quite old enough to be like, oh, Satanism? Satanism is what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, I'm old enough to remember Dana Carvey's Church Lady. So whenever something like that comes up, I'm like, could it be Satan? And then all the 30-year-olds just <laughs> blink their eyes and stare blindly at, like, blindly at or through me because they don't know what I'm talking about. But anyways, Joe... Um, since, since we're talking about age, mm-hmm. just so you know, Brandon, I really enjoyed uh, some of your sleuthing in the last episode. Uh huh. But you aged me an extra ten years. <laughs> oh no! You guessed I was late fifties, early sixties. I'm fifty-one. So, well, sorry. Yeah, I, I was... thought it was funny you had, you added ten years to my age. I was making educated guesses. That was the best I could do. <laughs> Well, I think I think any time it comes to guessing on stuff like this, we tend to insert uh, our own experiences into that. Right. Mm-hmm. So the point where we were starting Goblins and Growlers, all of us were late 20s, early 30s. And that's when we started doing tabletop RPG stuff with any real seriousness, trying to make a business out of it or anything like that. It sounds like you started much earlier. Yeah. Well, I started gaming when I was about 10. A friend of mine got the first version of Dungeons and Dragons, and we were off to the races. I'd been playing ever since then. So about 1980, I started. And I actually started working on the end 
like I say, I was only about a year out of college. So when I published it, I and it hit the shelves. I was only 25 years old. Okay. There's where my math failed me. I was I was expecting you to be like 30 or something when that happened. Yeah, a lot of people were, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> so t- talk to me a little bit about the gestation period for the end, because it sounds like from concept to getting it out there, you guys re- moved relatively quickly from a publishing standpoint. Like if you were sitting there in a Denny's in 1994 and then you published this book in 95, it sounds like things must have come together relatively quickly. You know... That they did, and that was really the first problem Scapegoat ran into. Oh, okay. All right. Now we're getting into some stuff. <laughs> let's yeah, let's let's talk about Scapegoat a little bit. Just lay that out for us. Well, Shane and I had been friends since early high school, and we'd never really worked together on anything creative. Like I say, this was really a response to having day jobs we both hated. Mm-hmm. And when I got when the idea was finally firmly in our heads, I, it sort of lit a fire under me. I wanted it to come out with within one year. I was ready to devote crazy amounts of time to it because I work better when I'm completely passionate about a subject and I throw myself into it wholeheartedly. He had the idea that it should take two to three years before we brought it out. We should really take our time and do a lot of development and really make it a beautiful showpiece. And I did not think I could maintain intensity over two or three years. Mm -hmm. So we started, like I say, at that Denny's. We get together every week. We divide up our writing duties. And then we get together and compare notes. and. After the first couple of weeks, I realized I was showing up with 20 pages of outlines and things like this, and Shane was going a lot slower. He was our system developer. He was He's the numbers guy. I mm-hmm. hate role-playing systems. I like the stories. Mm-hmm. So real quickly, he and I came to a huge argument over how fast we should be moving. And it was one that we did not get over. Actually, we stopped working together within about six weeks. Wow. Yeah. And some very, very harsh words were said, which I got to say, I took very personally. I was a person who can really be motivated by spite. (laughs) (laughs) There's no better way to get me to work hard than to suggest I'm going to fail. So I took our disagreement to heart and suddenly I went from working on this thing, maybe 20 hours a week to working on it 40 or 50 hours a week over and above my day job. So essentially what it sounds like is he said, if you keep working at this pace and try to get this thing out quickly, it's not going to work. It's not going to be good. That is almost exactly what he said. He said it wasn't going to be good. It wasn't going to look good and it wasn't going to sell. So, like I say, my spike gear kicked into high gear, and I said, I can do it in a year without you. I'll show you. I'll show them all. Yeah, yeah. It was not really emotionally mature in retrospect, but it was what gave me the fire to get it done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I noticed uh, looking in the credits here that his name does not appear. Yeah, um... It was, like I say, it was a huge level of spite. We worked it out. We became friends again after the book came out. I'd say about six months after, all was good again. Mm -hmm. Well, that's good. Yeah, you know, hopefully, I was hoping that's where this was going to end because I was like, man, I hope this guy who sent us a Facebook message out of nowhere wasn't like, that, you know, bleep, (laughs) Joe Donka. (laughs) No, no. I mean, there was a lot to be said. For his side of the argument that I couldn't see when I was 25. Mm -hmm. In retrospect, if I had it to do over again, I might have taken longer. But, you know, I didn't know that at the time. Right. Yeah. And, you know, you can't, you can't, nobody can be expected really to be emotionally mature in their mid 20s. Like, especially when they're trying to take on like this big project, which like this is like a full on capital A adult project that you're trying to do. And you're essentially still a kid. 
Yeah. So speaking of the credits, you start out with just you and Shane, and then it looks like at some point you bring on three other people. Yes and no. The end was always kind of a one-man show. I was the one who was obsessed with it. I was the one who was pushing really, really hard for it. Other people kind of came along for the ride. For example, after Shane left, uh, our, my friend Matt Jones said he really wanted to be involved. But he wasn't much of a writer, so he wasn't sure what to do. So I'm, I told him, look, I have no patience for art. I don't care about it. If I had my way, it would have been an artless book, and I would have just written and published it. So he took over for the art direction and did a fantastic job bringing on our artists. I ended up recruiting a few friends of mine from university for a little additional text. The first chapter was co-written by my friend Dan Woodward. Mm -hmm. He'd done the first draft and I did a, the revision. And that's what became our opening chapter with uh, Harry Leibowitz in the Wastelands. That was a fascinating read, by the way. That was, you know, I, I tend to take rpg books when i get them and just sit down and try to read through them chronologically so that was the first thing i hit and i was just sitting there like man this is this is pretty well done and i had read some reviews of the book before i picked it up and uh a theme through a lot of the reviews is like this is really depressing you know you're gonna read this <laughs> you're gonna read this and you're gonna feel really bummed out and you're gonna have to go do something to to cheer yourself up and that was kind of spot on. I was reading it uh, like on a Monday night at like 11 o'clock before bed. I was like, I should have picked a nice sunny day to go outside and read this. <laughs> but it was it was very well done. It was a well-told story. And your interpretation that you mentioned on the last episode was actually even more hopeful than the story was. <laughs> because you talked about Harry being essentially Daryl Dixon from Walking Dead and being this great unstoppable thing. And the impression I was trying to give at the end of that first chapter is he's going off to rescue his friend and he knows he's going to die in the process. Mm -hmm. So this was essentially him saying goodbye. Uh, you didn't take that and made me think you were really looking for some hope in there. I was really <laughs> looking for some hope in there. Whenever there's like in any kind of downer type story like that, I'm always looking for that ray of hope. And in my head, I'm just doing the calculations like, well, he survived all this stuff up till now. If there were another chapter of this where it begins with, you know, it was a tough fight, but he managed to kill all of them. I would have believed it without reservation. <laughs> well, you are a far more hopeful person than I am. <laughs> well, maybe I just haven't been beaten down enough. <laughs> Who knows? I, unlike most gamers I hang around with, really love a tragedy. Mm-hmm. A hero who dies at the end, that is the kind of story I can completely get behind. And it was always what I had in mind for Harry. Because mm -hmm. Harry was really an important part of the book. Because that first chapter isn't flavor text. It was exactly what we wanted people to know going in. Mm -hmm. That you're not immortal. You're not all powerful. You are essentially a regular person. And we also made the combat system of this game so incredibly lethal that it was, or most players who played it told me it was the most realistic thing they'd ever seen because one shot with a pistol at short range and my character died. Yeah. Well, isn't that what's supposed to happen? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, in a post-apocalyptic situation, we're essentially being sent back to civil war eras of medicine and technology. And you know, one gut shot's really all it takes, and it's just it's done. I've played a couple video or a couple of role playing games where you get shot point blank with a shotgun. Oh, well, I can keep fighting. No, you should not. This is <laughs> this is ultra realism, and it was what it was going for. And I got quite a lot of people who really enjoyed that aspect of it. It made combat very consequential, mm -hmm. and. That was something we really wanted. So that's why the chapter with Harry was so important, because we wanted people to get the feel of who 
their characters should be. You heard it here first, folks. The end is the dark souls of TTRPGs. <laughs> I mean, I, th- I think it does. It it really does a good job of talking about what it's like to live in that world. Um, you know, it's it sets the table very well for what reality looks like at that point. You know, we know there are other people out there. There's not a whole lot of steady communication. There are little pockets and of survivors and townships and things like that. But you just have to, you know, you have to get hardened by the world in order to survive in this world. Well, it's like any post-apocalypse, right? You find survivors, that's not necessarily a good thing. Right. You know, and and, and in this, we're dealing with um, slavers and all kinds of other stuff. Yeah, the survivors of the end, while they were not particularly good or bad when the apocalypse happened, living in this world tends to nudge you one way or the other. Yeah. Which is something, again, a philosophical argument I always really enjoyed. Joe, you talked a lot about philosophy influencing the end and your religious upbringing. Mm-hmm. What is what are a couple of your favorite philosophers to study so that folks at home can kind of see into your mind a little bit? Well, I was always very fond of the existentialists. Nietzsche, Wittgenstein, Sartre, people of that nature. And I think it shows a lot in the book. Because here's something that might shock Brandon a little bit. I never found the end a particularly depressing game. I've always enjoyed absurdist philosophers where nothing in this world has any meaning except what you ascribe to it. So a world where the orders, desires of a god are withdrawn leads to a lot of questions you have to decide for yourself instead of just saying, well, I get my answers from this book. And the absurdist nature of not gonna, you know you're not going to be judged for any of your actions here on Earth really does allow people to consider what they believe is right. And like I say, it's the reason why I never found the end depressing, though I know a lot of people did. Let me ask you something. This will tie back in. But sure. one of the you know key conceits in the setup of the game world is that God is sort of communicating what's happening to everybody through this dream to sort of let them know what the score is at this point. Can you talk about that a a little bit? Yeah. Looking back at that, I really wish I'd done that one differently. Oh, okay. Well, like just recap it in your own words, what it is, and then tell us maybe what you didn't like about it and what you might've liked to tweak. Well, essentially, if you're going to have the people wrestle with these philosophical questions, you sort of have to set the stage. Mm -hmm. So, You need the people to know that God and the devil are no longer a factor. And I think I was very influenced by Stephen King's The Stand at the time, the idea of dreams. And it got the job done, but I can't help thinking there would be a more elegant way to do it. If I ever dove back into this world, I would probably find something a little simpler than the dream world. Mm Mm-hmm. It was a it was a way to get from point A to point B. Yeah, when something simpler, like, are you thinking like, you know, Michael standing high atop the mount and telling everybody, you know, like, hey, listen up, here's the score, folks. Actually, I don't even think I'd go that complex. I would just have the sound of the gates of heaven and hell closing be so absolutely unmistakable that no one could possibly think they were anything different. Mm-hmm. And just let it be that. I think that would have been a far more elegant way to handle it. Mm-hmm. But here again, that's the perspective of a 50-year-old instead of the perspective of a 25-year-old. Yeah, that could open some doors, too, to have. I mean, you you sort of did this in the book as it is, but, you know, different sort of new schools of thought growing up in this landscape as to what that might have meant. Uh, like, I think if I recall correctly, there are some sort of religious clades in the in the book as it is now um, where they're like, oh, well, we have to do good works to help to, like, prove to God that we're worthy. So he'll change his mind. Yeah, that was one of my colonies. Uh, back to God, Washington. Mm-hmm. The idea that actually talking with a, I forget who exactly I was talking with said, do you really think people would give up on religion that easily? 
And of course, no, they they wouldn't. It's too big a part of pe- some people's lives, even if they weren't particularly good at it. Mm-hmm. So that really naturally lent itself to we should have some people who are denying the reality in front of their faces. Most of the colonies were kind of how I thought people would react absent a God telling them what they need to do or not do. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where kind of all of them came from. Obviously, Atlanta and the slavers is just the worst possible interpretation. The compound in Waco was really... What would an incel do if they suddenly found themselves with a lot of weapons after the apocalypse? That sort of thing. (laughs) All of them sort of came in response to how normal people without a good philosophical grounding would respond to total freedom. Mm -hmm. Did you spend a lot of time consuming post-apocalypse media to kind of drum up more inspiration for what the world might look like? (laughs) I had always read a lot of uh, post-apocalypse media. I loved that genre. I always have. So it was pretty natural to just add to that body that I'd been loving for quite so long. Like I say, The Stand was really a major inspiration. I really enjoyed that book. And Stephen King talks about how much he enjoyed destroying the world. I think he called it taking a fast, happy tap dance on the grave of the world. (laughs) (laughs) And that sounded fantastic to me. I love doing it. I love destroying the world. It was really interesting to me that uh, when I realized that uh, The End came out uh, in the same year as the first Left Behind book. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Those factored in, too. Really? Really? Talk about that for a minute. Well, actually, I got given those because I was completely soaking in apocalypse fiction. But I had done everything from my own Roman Catholic background. I really didn't understand almost anything about the evangelical churches in America. So when I was given those, and I got to see yet another perspective on the apocalypse, it was interesting, and I tried to work in some of the ideas, but it wasn't what I was really comfortable with. So... I don't think they had as much impact as, say, you know, my Catholic education from first grade till the end of university. Mm -hmm. But yeah, for years, my friends would throw me any apocalyptic fiction they found. (laughs) This is right up Joe's alley. We need to make sure he knows about this. It's nice to have friends who know you. It's like that grandma that knows you're into one thing. And so you just get all of that thing that they can find. Yeah. Yeah, that's that was very much my life. <laughs> <laughs> Taking it back a little bit to um the actual production of the game. Mm-hmm. You know, you were talking about the fallout between you and Shane being sort of the first big mistake of Scapegoat. Mm-hmm. So, did you like did you found Scapegoat and incorporate it like as an LLC like solely for the purpose of producing this game and like what other plans did you have for the company? Actually, I was really glad you didn't start researching corporations to see what happened to Scapegoat. I only ever uh, ran it as a sole proprietorship, so there was no paperwork founded. Okay. Adding another layer to your air of mystery. (laughs) Yeah, that would have been deeply disappointing for you, so I'm glad you didn't delve into it too deeply. Mm -hmm. No, actually, I had several other product lines. We had an idea for a superhero game, which would have been an alternate history based on World War II. Mm Mm-hmm. I actually wrote and have an entire manuscript for another book called One Night Stand, which was designed to be adventures that can be played in a single night by a group of friends with no character generation at all. Well, that's cool. So there were plans to make Scapegoat a going concern. It just unfortunately never happened. I guess, did the reception of this book, both sort of like publicly and monetarily, sort of affect the plans for that? All right. Um, No, this is actually a place where some of your earlier deductions, Mm -hmm. I think, went a little off the rails. Well, let's call them speculations then. Mm. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah. The end was a niche product. Mm -hmm. And I always knew that it was going to be. It was a particularly grim view of the world. It was heavily based in Christian mythology. So 
I knew that this was not going to be Dungeons and Dragons or Magic the Gathering. But we sold really, really well. Awesome. The first Gamma show after we released, I was sitting around with a bunch of other developers who just put out their first games and we were comparing our sales numbers because that's what you do. Mm -hmm. And they were shocked to find out I'd blown through my first print run in about 14 months. Wow. Which was easily triple my nearest competitor. So we sold really, really well, especially well in Europe. Most of my product actually sold in Germany, the UK, Scandinavia, and uh, France. Wow. I'd say I ship more than half my product over there. That's fascinating. I mean, I know, I know the statistics talk about how since World War II, like religiosity has been on decline more in Europe than, you know, anywhere else in the West. So I wonder if that factors into it or not. But that's just interesting that so much of it went over there. Yeah, I always thought so, too. The fact I got my very first fan letter from Essen, Germany, about six weeks after the game came out, and two months after the game came out, someone in Elgin, Illinois, which is less than 20 miles from where I lived, couldn't get a copy of the game. (laughs) How many books were in your first run? Uh, A little over 3,000. Okay, that's not bad. Yeah, no, we were selling very, very well. The controversy at Gen Con had given us a nice goose. Mm-hmm. The fact that I had gotten a lot of the major distributors to agree to sell the product when most of them wouldn't originally mm-hmm. really helped our sales numbers. So it was really a case of any publicity is good publicity. Mm-hmm. And in your earlier speculations, I got the feeling you imagined it didn't sell well and that was just sort of the death of it but actually it wasn't what happened was i released the game in october of 1995 Mm -hmm. started selling really really well i thought we were going to have a really solid hit on our hands and then in january of 96 i was diagnosed with cancer oh my god oh my god yeah um so i had a very, very young case of testicular cancer, which took me out of my day job. So my income was down to nothing for months. I spent a lot of time in hospital beds. So the idea of writing and running the company was just too much for me. And by the time I'd recovered, gotten back on my feet, gotten back to work, started paying off, you know, what I owed, Most of the money I had made from the first print run had been gone to pay bills, had gone to pay for my student loans, had gone to pay for keeping the company running at a bare minimum. So all of our subsequent products we were going to release had all missed their deadlines because I was counting on good health to put them out. Mm -hmm. And by deadlines, I guess you're talking about like delivery dates that you were talking to distributors about and things like that. Oh, yeah. We had a fairly ambitious production schedule, which involved two supplements at least per year. Wow. They were going to be smaller, of course. I mean, we were going to shoot for uh, like 96 page booklets to add a little more to the world each time. Mm -hmm. And I had a manuscript or two actually done. but while I was worrying about my health and getting back on my feet and dealing with the depression of getting that kind of sickness that young, Mm -hmm. I missed the window for scapegoat to really catch on. Yeah. Like the iron, the iron was no longer hot when you were ready to strike again. Exactly. Wow. I, yeah, that's, that's amazing. I really appreciate the context on that, that everything just sort of makes a little bit more sense now. Yeah, I'm I'm sure you can see where we might have drawn conclusions because we would not have known anything about your personal health at the time. Yeah. So we were like, well, you know, if they did the one thing and then they vanish, then it seems to make sense. But wow, I mean, obviously you're still here with us, which is awesome. I'm mm-hmm. glad everything turned out okay. But what an experience to have. Jeez. Especially that young. Yeah, it was actually interesting because as i say i was still trying to keep scapegoat going at some level so i got out of my first round of chemotherapy and after my first major surgery 
And I immediately got in, you know, a car. We drove to the Gamma Trade Show in New Jersey. And I was there looking like death warmed over. I was going around talking to distributors with my freshly glossy head. Uh, I still had 67 surgical staples in my stomach. And I'm making a pitch for them to buy product. Which I got to say, they were very appreciative of the fact I was out there killing myself to sell my product. I got a lot of respect from them. And I think that was another reason why the print run went through so quickly. Wow. Yeah, that is dedication. That is, that is just, that is dedication. That's all I can say to that. Like you believe in something and you're taking it all the way. I had a couple experiences like that where injuring myself actually brought me customers. (laughs) Oh no. If I learned one thing, people like to see you put everything on the line. And every time I did, I was usually rewarded for it. Well, that's the classic underdog story, right? Like he'll do anything to get ahead. Yeah. And I think I said this uh, in the, the last time we talked about this, but you know, anytime somebody has a creative vision that they execute and just put their heart into it, like, I don't care what it is. I respect that because you know, if you believe in something enough to just put yourself on the line, put yourself out there, uh, it doesn't matter what it is. Like you demonstrated the strength of character to be like, this is, this is my thing. And I want you to see, understand, and hopefully appreciate my thing. I think that's awesome. Like anytime you can articulate a unique vision and bring it to people for them to either embrace or reject, I think that's amazing. Yeah. Having an idea is easy. Executing on that idea is incredibly hard. And that's something we have a lot of appreciation for now as creatives ourselves. Well, you're very kind to say most of my friends thought I was nuts. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the risk you run having like a vision of something you really want to do and put out there is people aren't going to understand it. <laughs> They're going to think it's silly or something, but you just have to believe in yourself. And it sounds like you didn't have any problem with that. No, I've always had a really healthy amount of self-confidence, probably too much, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I know, that, I know that feeling too. I want to talk a little bit more about sort of the business end of things, but I want to, we we touched on Gen Con and the ban and everything like that, but I'd like to hear a little bit about it sort of in your words of how that all went down. And you've already talked about how it actually kind of probably positively affected you all, but I just want to hear it, you know, straight from you, sort of how that happened. Oh, absolutely. Just to start, I should probably be perfectly honest. We always courted controversy. Mm Mm-hmm. Like I say, I had gamed all through the satanic panic. My friends had had their role-playing games taken by their parents and burned. We remember going to... I remember going to church and having the priest talk about Dungeons & Dragons and how horrible it was. So some part of me, like I say, I'm motivated by spite, love the idea of putting my thumb in these people's eye. Part of what we were talking about is when we first came up with the idea for the game, we said there are going to be people that are going to have trouble with this because it is openly heretical and very, very blasphemous. We didn't have a name for the company yet. And one of the things I said is, well, if we're going to offend people, that's great. We should just tell all the other companies that if they get accused of Satanism, just point at us. And say, no, no, it's not us. It's these guys. Oh, that's great. We'll be your scapegoat. We'll go on the 700 Club. We'll go to the churches. Go ahead. Blame us. Take the heat off yourself. And that's why we called ourselves Scapegoat Games. That's amazing. I love that I love so that. much. <laughs> so I always kind of had the feeling. I, I like putting my thumb in the eye of powerful people. So... We were getting ready for our first Gen Con. We were planning to release in Gen Con 95. Had a booth. We were fully expecting TSR to see what we were selling and throw us out. Uh, Had alternative plans where the booth would be empty and it would just direct them to a nearby hotel room where they could buy the book that they couldn't get at the con. (laughs) We were going to make a whole event of it. Problem was, I was doing so much of this work by myself that I just completely botched the deadline. I could not get it to the printer in time to have it for Gen Con, which is why it came out the following October. 
So here I am with a booth at Gen Con that's not going to have any product in it. I don't know if y'all know this. Booths at Gen Con are expensive. Oh, yes, we we are aware. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've got a little bit of a handle on that. Yeah, we do more. We do like the smaller convention scene when we're selling our stuff. But, you know, we we usually are able to trade programming for a free booth. And if we ever end up going to Gen Con, that will not be the case. <laughs> yeah, I, I ended up giving up the booth and I talked to the people at TSR. I said, do you mind if we distribute? literature and they said no that'll be fine so we came up with the idea of the sandwich boards Mm -hmm. we'd all walk around in these the end is near sandwich boards we dress like kind of the mormon missionary look white Mm -hmm. shirt tie dress pants try to make it really look the part and it took about 45 minutes before our flyer made it back to the people at tsr (laughs) and they're person came out to tell us we could not give this information out. <laughs> uh, fortunately, uh, Joe Tierney, who you talked about on your last podcast, mm-hmm. was a good college friend of mine. He was in law school, so he came over to be my attorney. <laughs> and he pointed out that there was absolutely no way TSR could ban us from giving out information on the sidewalk outside the convention hall. So we moved outside to those long lines of people getting in, giving out our material, and we got ourselves a lot of attention that way. Wow. But we were banned. And in a moment that I, my friend uh, Matt Jones, my former art director, would never forgive me if I didn't mention, the person from TSR was standing there telling us we had to get out, literally with the band Guar standing <laughs> directly behind her. That's amazing. (laughs) And Matt's just like, I can't believe our little flyer is offensive, but that's Guar standing right there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're we're actually in Richmond. So, you know, Guar is a local band for us. So that's that's really fun. That's like doubly funny. So you understand the irony on every level. Yes. Oh, very much so. Yeah. So we got put out and. So we ended up marching up and down during all the times. And we had a lot of people freak out. They thought we were religious protesters. (laughs) They thought we were the ones who were here to burn the books. It was actually pretty hilarious. A lot of people responded very well once they got the literature and saw we were selling a game. But there were a lot of scared gamers giving us the hairy eyeball. So like, you know, not knowing what the future was going to hold, were you guys worried that this would affect your relationship with TSR like for the following year's Gen Con? Yeah, but we didn't care. Okay. Well, that's fair. I mean, the whole the whole point was to raise hell. I liked raising hell. I still like raising hell. Um, so <laughs> if they banned us, we would set up an alternate venue. We'd make it, you know, make people feel like they're going and doing something illicit by coming to a hotel room and sliding money under the door and getting the game in return send them to a speakeasy they have to know the password yeah essentially we were fully ready to do that and we thought it would people would enjoy that sort of thing but as it happens the following gen con wizards had bought out tsr and the exact same person who threw me out the year before sold me the booth next year (laughs) and i said are you gonna have a problem with it they said no well, uh, Wizards of the Coast doesn't have the whole TSR hangup, so we actually sold at the next Gen Con. Oh, that's great. I mean, that's business, baby. <laughs> I was all ready to get thrown out, and they refused to throw me out. <laughs> you were like, but I came prepared. There's almost nothing worse than being ginned up and ready for a fight, and then the fight doesn't show up. You just feel like... I don't know. You've got all this energy, at least for me, you've got all this energy pent up that now you can't, you have no outlet for <laughs> On the bright side, we did sell a lot of games that year, and it gave a really good boost to our morale and our the bank account, which really helped. That, that's I mean, awesome. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's so that's so great that that whole thing was basically calculated by you. That's that's really fascinating, and it, like all the references to it that I had been able to find just made it sound like a little bit more, I guess, innocent in in the way it happened to you, like you were victims. But it's really it's really interesting that you're like. Yeah, I know how this is going to go. 
And this is going to, this is going to work out a little bit for me. <laughs> Granted, I was more than happy to just give out my literature and be a good citizen of the gaming world. I wasn't like, yes, we must get banned. I'm trying to do this. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> Ready in case it happened. I really wanted them to get over the whole terror of the Christian right, you know, who might come down on our games if we didn't bow and scrape. I was I really hoping they'd have some backbone, but alas, they did not until Watsy took over. I will say the use of the end is near sandwich boards was just like chef's kiss. Just beautiful. Yeah, yeah that's pretty brilliant. I really like that. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I'm particularly proud about there is we're marching back and forth, and it's August in Milwaukee. Three of the days we were doing that were over 100 degrees. Ugh. So, and I'm dressed like a Mormon missionary with a heavy sandwich board and all this, you know, marching around. It turns out these two people sitting right next to the stairs where I was working were from two distributors who wouldn't buy my product. They were, no, we're not going to have anything to do with this. You're trying to get the whole industry in trouble. But they saw me, you know, walking back and forth, sweating bullets, passing out flyers, dealing with everybody. They said, we're going to have to buy his game because if he's working this hard, it's going to be successful. So I ended up getting, um, it was War Games West, and I forget the name of the other distributor, walked up to me and said, well, you're going to have orders from us, even though we have already told you no. And when I went home the following Monday, I collapsed at my job because I'd given myself a really severe case of heat stroke. Oh, God. Yeah, back to the hospital, too. I was going to say yet another situation where you learned that, like, just throwing yourself whole body into it is, is it can make you more successful somehow. It's a shame that 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 our society makes artists put that much out there to be successful, but yeah, yeah, I was young. I was invincible. Hey, GG peeps, Josh here. We had such an interesting conversation with Joe that it ended up running. Oh my gosh. Almost two hours of audio. So we found a break point in the middle. We're going to split these up. You're going to get the other episode in two weeks. And Joe is back. He's talking a little bit more about scapegoat games, but then he's also talking about the follow-up company, Tyranny Games. So tune in for that. As always, I'm Josh Maltby at Black Cloak DM on Twitter. Brandon, my co-host, is at Way of Brandalore on Twitter. And thank you so much to Joe Donka for coming out and talking to us. This is a really fascinating interview for both of us and something we were really excited to do. So hopefully everybody else is loving it as well. Bye, y'all.